Welcome to the Performax podcast. This is your host, Aaron, and I'm with Derek, our vice president. How are you doing today, Derek? I'm doing great. I apologize if I sound sick to anybody, but we're here for you guys. <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, I think today I wanted to talk about the regulations that the FDA kind of um, brought down uh, specifically on DMHA and Phenobut. So I'll kind of let you hop in, kind of give your thoughts, and then uh, I'll kind of jump in as well and kind of tell everyone what I'm thinking about um, those warning letters as well. Yeah, I mean, it's um, not surprising, um, you know, to, I guess, general consumers, they hear things like this, and then I, I, I think the knee-jerk reaction, and this is how I used to think before I got, like, deeper into the industry, but anytime something tends to work, quote-unquote, the FDA wants to mess with it and take it away. Uh, same thing happened with DMAA, which is obviously still being fought, fought for to come back. But, you know, as consumers, it seems like every time they find something that works, the FDA wants to say something about it. And uh, I tend to just think because our industry is so successful and it is growing still, they just feel more and more um, forced to kind of regulate it more. So I don't think any of these ingredients that brands have used are bad. I just think that um, they're, I guess, gray area. Maybe they could be, you know, ingredients that should be more monitored or tested on humans before it's actually considered safe for humans or, you know, whatever you want to say. But, you know, it is going to force a lot of these brands that do use DMHA and Fenibut and um, whatever other ingredients. I think there were a couple extras. Um, it, it's going to force them to either reformulate or kind of push the envelope like we've seen brands do with DMAA, pushing the envelope even after it was, you know, told, don't do this. And, uh, you know, we've seen some people get in trouble for this kind of stuff so you know for for the most part if you're in this for the long term i think it's best to uh kind of just go by what is safest or at least considered safest for the consumer i know um uh, hypermax doesn't use dmha and it's considered one of the strongest pre-workouts on the market uh, it was always it has been for years the number one rated non-dmha based pre-workout uh, and now, obviously, it's uh, got to be considered one of the uh, the, the strongest pre workouts. Period, because now most people are going to have to take DMHA out. Yeah. So, what I think is interesting about this uh, <clears throat> these warning letters being sent out is there wasn't a direct catalyst. So, generally, um, there's something that kind of pokes the FDA, and then the FDA makes a uh, um, a move. So generally, uh, what pokes the FDA is Peter Cohen, um, the Harvard uh, <laughs> um, professor who puts out these smear articles um, on specific ingredients. And then generally, you know, it's the USA Today who will then share those articles and push it. Um, then it makes it to kind of like the general consumer. There's this widespread kind of concern. Then the FDA is essentially kind of forced to uh, make a move. And um, that's essentially what happened with um, beta-methylphenylethylamine was he did his smear article. There was this concern. Oh, wow. You know, this, this, this quote unquote amphetamine analog is, 
is in dietary supplements and then the general population is concerned the fda is then forced to make a move and then they do um with the dmaa it was obviously um i believe a soldier's death which ultimately uh was proven to not be uh because of dma at all um but it was that catalyst that kind of started that with this dmha there wasn't any direct catalyst that at least i'm aware of to where it would have made the fda say okay we need to do this or we're being pressed to do this now i think the biggest thing is well there's i think there's two things one it's direct relation to dmaa and um the fda's you know very clear stance on on what they feel you know uh um you know with dma not being a dietary ingredient so i think that direct relation and then i do think just the widespread use i think dmha made it into so many products um and it wasn't this kind of like underground you know stem anymore there's pretty fairly mainstream brands um that were using it and some of them you know pulled it and moved on but still even when they were using it they were still considered fairly mainstream brands um and i think that must have been why the fda decided to go uh against uh dmha um now i think what's interesting is in their warning letters what they did is they mentioned two ingredients two amino six methylheptane and two amino five methylheptane and they basically just lumped that together and said you know throughout the rest of this letter the you know that will be referred as dmha and those are two different chemicals. Those aren't the same ingredient. Those are two different ingredients, but they're being lumped together as DMHA. Um, and what's interesting about that is I think there's an argument for one of those ingredients. Now, when you see 2-amino isoheptane, um, you hear about DMHA, you see 2-amino 6-methylheptane, those are all in reference to the same ingredient generally, which is 2-amino 6-methylheptane or 1,5-dimethylhexylamine. Um, and that specific compound was approved as a prescription drug, I believe back in like 1942 or 1941. And the way that the law is written is if it's ever been approved as a drug, it automatically cannot be a dietary ingredient. It just can't. So that pretty much takes DMHA, as we know it, 2-amino-6-methylheptane, off the table as a legal dietary ingredient. Now, it's been isolated uh, in a plant, uh, K. africana fruit extract, um, a fruit, I believe, out in Africa. Um, and so it is naturally occurring, but that really doesn't matter once it's actually been approved um, as a prescription drug. And I think a lot of people didn't know that. Um, I believe, and you know, I could be wrong, I believe it was even Bruce Neller uh, who ended up breaking the news of 2-amino-6-methylheptane. And at his, at, when it first came out, you know, his statement was, this should be a legal dietary ingredient because it's naturally occurring in K-Africana fruit extract. Um, so there was that argument. And I just don't think people knew that back in 1942, it was uh, approved as a prescription drug. And, you know, had Bruce known that, I don't think he would have made the statement that it, you know, could be a legal dietary ingredient. And I think a lot of people that were using it in their product probably didn't know that as well. 
Um, so I think that's, you know, how it became so widespread was, hey, it is naturally occurring. Um, it's naturally found in a consumable food. Um, there's certainly an argument for compliance. And I think people jumped on board and started throwing it in their products. But I think those same people, had they known at a certain point in time, you know, this was a prescription drug, which means it could never be a dietary ingredient, uh, probably would have changed the landscape of use of DMHA. Do you feel, I mean, in your opinion, do you feel like the FDA has any vendetta against this our industry as far as some of these ingredients? Or do you think it's like just science-based and they say this this can can be used, this can't? Or is there anything negative? So I don't think that, and again, this is like 100% personal opinion. I don't think there's like a vendetta per se against the industry because I do think um, the FDA could go a lot harder on us uh, if they so choose to do so. But I think they like to interpret it how they would like to interpret it. And that's not necessarily what's written in Dacia. And that became apparent in the in the whole court case with high tech and the FDA and um, uh, you know what the judge ruled, which was um, essentially the FDA would like to say, hey, look, if it's synthetically made, it's not a dietary ingredient. There's just literally no statement of anything about that in Dacia. Um, there's nothing that says it can't be uh, a synthetic uh, ingredient. What it says is it needs to be a metabolite, a constituent, um, so on and so forth um, of of a naturally occurring consumable uh, good, essentially. And so, and that and that was kind of you know what that the judge kind of made clear was, hey, look, you know, if if it is in extractable quantities then it should be able to be made or uh, used synthetically and still be a dietary ingredient. But then the judge himself even started to throw kind of things into the mix that, again, aren't written in, you know, the Dietary Health and, Supp or Supplement, Health and Supplement Education Act of 1994, um, which was his statement was it needed to be in extractable quantities uh, or previously extracted. And then it could be a dietary ingredient, and then you could get away with use, using a synthetic version of it. But again, that's not in um, Dacia either. There's nothing that says the amount or what the parts per million or, you know, has it needed to previously been extracted. None of that is written into the law at all. That's all just that judge's interpretation. And then there's, you know, the FDA's interpretation. And then there's literally what's the law states and the law doesn't state it has to be in extractable quantities the law doesn't state that it can't be uh, uh, synthetic it just states that it needs to be a naturally occurring metabolite or constituent which you know dmaa is of geranium oil or dmha is of k africana fruit extract um so yeah i don't think that they have a vendetta at all i think they have their interpretation and their interpretation might not always jive with, you know, the industry's interpretation. And then, you know, even the judge in that case had a completely different interpretation than even FDA. And his interpretation actually kind of went against what the FDA stance is. Um, it wasn't in complete favor of high techs, but it was probably more uh, in favor of high tech than it was of the FDA. 
Yeah, I think I, I kind of thought to ask that to you, uh, I guess, in defense for most consumers, because I, I mean, it's just like a cliche thing for that I hear all the time is like, man, every time something works, they get rid of it. And it's like, you, you kind of almost feel that way because everything that has worked, they're like, no, nope, can't use it anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think um, that could be true to some degree, um, but I don't think it's as arbitrary as the FDA going, ah, oh, you know, that ingredient works. Let's, let's go and get that one removed. Yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that's their protocol or their, their standard operating procedure. Um, I do think that there's some due diligence for sure. There's due diligence on their side of it. Um, I think where it gets sticky is just their specific interpretation of it um, is, is essentially kind of up for debate. And again, that this kind of like new precedence of, um, you know, the high tech pushing back, which hasn't really been seen before, basically put it into court. And then now you start to get, you know, a whole new interpretation, you know, from a judge and it starts to show, hey, there could be some uh, multiple opinions on what this specifically means. Yeah, it's almost, but yeah, I guess my thought is like if, if it's black or white or if opinions should matter you know i guess i just feel like there should be black and white and not gray in our industry just so people know yeah and the the problem with that is it's just the way you know daisha's written it's mm -hmm. it's fairly black and white if you literally take it at face value um but i think that you know uh clearly the fda's again has their interpretation of it so unless it was right. rewritten I don't know that it would ever not be up for interpretation just because it can be slightly ambiguous depending on how you read it and exactly what you believe, you know, X, Y, and Z means. I almost feel our industry has come so far since these things were written that you almost could rewrite it at this point if somebody was willing to take the time because our industry has been light years ahead of like, every decade. It's improving. The formulations are improving. The business is improving, like it's becoming a bigger impact. So, you know, I know it's just simple to say, and it's a whole nother thing to get it done, but it maybe something should be re-reviewed at this point. Yeah. Um, well, what, what I think is happening is we're going to start to have a more clear picture of exactly what it will be. And I think that's what's happening within the whole court case, you know, with high tech and the FDA is by the end of it, we should have ideally a pretty good understanding of, of if it does go to court, how, you know, in which way would it be ruled? And, you know, how does the, how, how does the court kind of interpret it? And at the end of the day, that's kind of the end all be all, I suppose. Um, so I do think, you know, once the whole court case is resolved, we're going to know, you know, does it just need to be a constituent? And is if it is a constituent, then it can be sold synthetically or no, it can never, nothing can ever be synthetic. It has to be extracted for. Um, I think, you know, once that court case is resolved, we'll have something to kind of hang our hat on in terms of, okay, well then this is, this is what it is. Uh, because again, you know, that the way the FDA interprets it, you know, is it's their interpretation of, of what it says, but it might not be, you know, ours or 
even the judges or anybody that decides to read it and kind of look at uh, exactly what it says. So um, kind of jumping to the point I slightly hinted at uh, within the warning letters was <clears throat> there's two different versions mentioned, the 2-amino-6-methylheptane and the 2-amino-5-methylheptane. Now what's interesting is the 2-amino-5-methylheptane at least from the information I have, has never been prescribed as a, uh, as a prescription drug. And it's naturally occurring in walnut bark, um, English walnut bark, uh, Persian walnut bark, I'm not sure. Um, so 2-amino-5-methylhetane actually does have at least some sort of argument and that's why I kind of hinted at, you know, uh, earlier when I was saying that, that they tried to lump these two ingredients together and say, hey, this is DMHA, we think it's banned. These are actually two different ingredients, uh, two different active dosages. Yeah, are they similar? For sure. Um, but they're not the same. Um, and so if you obviously, as I'm, I'm sure most people, you know, know, high tech kind of pushed back, uh, you know, against the FDA saying, hey, look we don't believe what you're saying. We believe this is a dietary ingredient. If you actually read their response, the entire response, while they do kind of mention um, 2-amino-6-methylheptane, probably only because it was mentioned in, in, the, in the warning letter, almost their entire response is based off 2-amino-5-methylheptane being naturally occurring in a walnut bark extract. Um, and so you even read it, 2-amino-5-methylheptane, 2-amino-6-methylheptane, 2-heptamine, 5-methyl-octadrine uh, is a stimulant compound naturally found in walnut bark extract or the bark from the Juglans regia tree. 2-amino-5-methylheptane um, for sure is. I've never seen any sort of research that shows 2-amino-6-methylheptane is. Um, but again, I think that's kind of the interesting thing about this whole situation is what high tech is really pushing back on is the fact that 2-amino-5-methylheptane is naturally occurring in a consumable food source and has never been prescribed as a, as a prescription drug before. So there is a strong argument that maybe 2-amino-5-methylheptane could be a legal dietary ingredient, whereas 2-amino-6-methylheptane, at least from my interpretation, could never be. But again, when the FDA sent out their warning letters, they sent it out specifically or about DMHA and then lump those two ingredients together. And then when high tech basically issued their response, they pretty much only go after or mention two amino five methylheptane because that's the one that they really have an argument against. Whereas I just don't think that there's a strong argument against, you know, two amino six methylheptane actually being a legal dietary ingredient. I'm wondering if FDA kind of like knows or shares these same thoughts as, people in our industry that are educated like yourself or, you know, guys at high tech, you know, this is what we do for a living. And it is what FDA does for a living, but they're obviously sending out letters and trying to get people to change their formulations and their business in, and they're not being as specific as they should be because they're, they're grouping two things together that aren't the same, even though they're similar and they're not the same. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if, uh, you know, what we have to understand is the FDA does a whole lot more than just dietary ingredients. Yeah. Um, you know, they do general food, uh, tobacco, uh, drugs. 
um, you know, prescription. And so there's only a small amount of resources that they're likely able to allocate towards regulating, you know, dietary ingredients. So I don't know, you know, what type of research on their end goes through, uh, they go through whether or not it was, uh, Hey, we know these are two separate chemicals. Let's just lump them together because, you know, they know once they send these warning letters out, everyone's gonna, you know, completely follow suit as, as you know, unless you, I guess you have the money to fight it, you probably should. Um, or, you know, they just don't have the resources to get into the deep research and see two amino five methylaptane, two amino six methylaptane. They are essentially all referred to as DMHA within our industry. When you hear about J Regia extract or two amino five methylaptane, everybody will still call it DMHA. So they might just be going based off what the trend is within our industry and what we would most normally reference it as, and then just using that as the verbiage. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have a strong answer on, on whether, you know, it was purposely done or, or not purposely done, but again, they for sure did, you know, lump two ingredients together, said that these are basically both DMHA and they're not a legal dietary ingredient when in fact one probably isn't and one actually has a, a fair argument that it could be. And I think that's, you know, where high tech's kind of able to push back and kind of able to kind of fight it is really based on two amino five methylheptane being the naturally occurring uh, constituent of walnut bark extract. Right. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Now Phenobut on the other hand, um, I believe it's a prescription drug in Russia. I don't know a whole lot or haven't done a whole lot of research into Phenobut, but I don't believe it's naturally occurring. Um, yeah, I'm nearly a thousand percent positive it's natu not naturally occurring. Um, and it's sold as a prescription drug in other countries. Um, furthermore, it does have um, habit forming effects i wouldn't call it like addictive per se but you know anybody that's in the know of phenobut would tell you do not take it you know consecutive days in a row you know don't take it more than two or three times a week because you do start to form a somewhat of a dependence on it especially when used to sleep and if you did use it for you know a week or two weeks in a row and came off of it the withdrawals are or could be fairly severe. And there has been cases of fairly severe withdrawals or opiate-like withdrawals even. Um, and so I think that one is a fairly clear cut, hey, that's not a legal dietary ingredient. You need to remove it. And I'm assuming most everybody's going to follow suit and just go ahead and uh, listen on that one. I would probably agree. I remember years ago when I was working in a store, I would have some guys that would come in and buy Fenibut by the bottles and I'm just like, what do you use this for? They're like, oh, <laughs> well, we know what they what, what they were using it for, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it can I, have slightly, almost like intoxicating effects. Um, yeah, definitely shouldn't be consumed with alcohol, but I, I'm assuming it, it often is. Um, and yeah, I mean, at certain dosages, you know, obviously, you use it before bed, you would essentially just fall asleep and get a, a pretty deep, restful night's sleep, but if you used it and stayed up 
you do get uh, almost like kind of like a buzzed type intoxicated feel. Um, and again, that just lends it to not being used appropriately, not being used, um, you know, carefully or healthfully and subsequently being banned because, you know, the FDA's job at the end of the day is to protect the general public. So, you know, if it was never used like that, it was used in moderate dosages in a sleep aid supplement, and it was recommended that you only take it two to three times per week and don't use it consecutive days. And there was enough uh, um, control or at least su suggested control of that ingredient, then yeah, maybe it would have been okay. But kind of like to your point, if, you know, kids are going into to nutrition stores and just buying bottles and bottles of it so they could take it and go out drinking so they get more messed up, so to speak. Like, yeah, let's get that off the market. That's probably not a good dietary ingredient, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, they can ban ingredients, not only ones that just shouldn't be legal for, I guess, safety reasons, but they can also ban them just for being misused too often, right? I guess too many reports of the same thing being misused. Ban is not the right word, right? So well, they're yeah. not banning anything. They're right. informing you that it was never a, a dietary ingredient to begin with, right? So it doesn't meet their definition of what a legal dietary ingredient is. And here's a letter that's informing you that's not a legal dietary ingredient and it needs to be removed from your product immediately and you need to cease, cease distribution and then respond, you know, within, I think it's 15 days of, of how you'll make sure that this doesn't happen in the future. So I think that's, you know, that's kind of another thing is when people, uh, you know, hear about these warning letters, oh, you know, the FDA taking it away. They're not taking it away or banning it or ma making it illegal. They're letting you know that was never legal to begin with. That should have never been in your product. Um, and we're just now making you aware that you shouldn't be using this and you need to remove it immediately. So I, I do think that is kind of like one misconception about these warning letters um, that, uh, that they're quote unquote banning or, or making it not a dietary ingredient. Based on the warning letters, their stance was this never was a dietary ingredient. And now we're just informing you of that. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, other than that, I don't really have too much um, more thoughts, I guess, on uh, Phenobut specifically, only because it's not something that, you know, I personally did, you know, a ton of research into. Um, I have used it a few times. I have gotten some good sleep. Um, I don't you know, have any qualms with the FDA saying it's not a legal dietary ingredient because it's not. Um, and then I do think the whole thing with DMHA will be interesting um, to see how that plays out in the sense of splitting up, you know, the difference or making the difference known of two amino five and two amino six methylatine. Um, and that one is not a legal dietary ingredient and one actually does have an argument and if anybody's going to make that argument, we know high tech, you know, has the best opportunity to present its case. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely going to be kind of a, an interesting uh, chain of events that happen. And I honestly didn't think they were going to come after DMHA until they were able 
to kind of close out the case on DMAA only because they're kind of essentially making the same, you know, stab at doing the same exact thing. And they must have known that high tech was going to, you know, push back on that one as well if they push back on the DMAA. So I was always under the assumption that the FDA probably doesn't like DMHA, probably doesn't agree that it's an illegal dietary ingredient, but needed to wait until they um, went through the process of, you know, fighting uh, the whole case with DMAA before they could actually make their stance. Um, now, again, they didn't need to with the two amino six methylaptane because that's just clearly not dietary ingredients, prescription drug. But they kind of would with the two amino five because the two amino five natural occurring in walnut bark extract is a very similar, you know, case and argument that high tech's making with, you know, one three DMA being natural occurring in geranium oil. So that's where it's they're kind of doing the same thing they did with DMAA and high tech's probably going to respond in the same way they did with DMAA. So I was kind of surprised about that, but then now it starts to make more sense why they lumped it in with the two amino six because definitely two amino six not. So if they could just lump it in and then boom, that's their argument. It's cut and dry. It was a prescription drug. Maybe they felt like that would be enough to, to kind of mitigate any arguments or pushback. Um, but clearly it wasn't. And the FDA or um, sorry, high tech uh, understands, you know, the research specifically around two amino five. And again, that's why, in their response letter, it's pretty much all based around 2-amino-5. Um, and they pretty much only mention 2-amino-5 and walnut bark extract uh, and J-Regia extract throughout the entire kind of response. Um, so yeah, it will be interesting only because it is a fairly s similar situation with DMAA. So uh, I think even a DMA, you know, that whole ruling could end up kind of letting us know what would happen with the two amino five. Yeah. I find it interesting on the brand side, like if the MAA were to get passed and like reintroduced, would people even be going after DMHA anymore? Cause DMAA is returning. So like that was what that was before DMHA, like DMHA was like the backup to DMAA once it fell off. So, you know, I'm curious to see like a lot of brands, if they change things up, once DMAA or if DMAA gets reintroduced, will the hype behind DMHA kind of fade away because they already got what they wanted? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, only because I have heard people say that they enjoy, you know, some people have said that they enjoy DMHA more than DMAA. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, for whatever reason, I don't think DMA is ever going to come back. I just couldn't, like, how would that work? You know, like, okay, now it's cool. All right, you know, now everybody from China start importing a whole bunch of it. Um, and now it's in C4 and now it's in freaking cage muscle and gym, gym, you know, well, it just doesn't make sense. I just don't know how it would all happen. And I just can't see that like actually happening. So um, I don't know, you know, how it ends up with the whole court case, but I just cannot like conceptualize the idea <laughs> of DMA actually coming back at volume. Yeah, it's been so long. So I don't know. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Yeah. So, um, cool. All right. Well, that was pretty much all my thoughts on uh, the whole DMHA and Fina butt thing. Um, 
Do you have anything else that you wanted to throw in? Or if not, we could just hop into the Q&A. No, but we do, yes, like you said, we do have questions on deck ready for you. Um, So we can jump into those. Uh, First question that we received was, why did you move away from the full-spectrum protein intra-workout product, Intramax? So with Intramax, um, I guess the short answer would be we haven't completely moved away from it. It's more of a reformulation um, that basically pull it from, from the market, essentially. So we have EAminoMax, which is obviously our EAA product, but that is not at all what I would consider an intra-workout um, in the same sense of Intramax. Uh, Intramax obviously had all your creatine, uh, L-alanyloglutamine, betaine and hydros, uh, and then like the, the person that asked the question mentioned, a full-spectrum uh, protein source plus leucine. So the way that we kind of came about that was there's some interesting research that showed that 6.25 grams of whey protein co-administered with leucine to either 3 grams of leucine or 5 grams of leucine actually outperformed 25 grams of straight whey. So when looking to enhance muscle protein synthesis, um, enhance uh, you know muscle protein turnover rates, uh, intra-workout, that the idea that it could perform just as well or better than 25 grams of whey to me seemed far more beneficial than, you know, five to 10 grams of just EAAs. So we decided to utilize that research and implemented that research into Intramax. And again, use the six grams of whey with an added three grams of leucine, which actually yielded closer to a little bit over four grams leucine once you took into account the leucine naturally occurring in protein. Um, and we utilize that within Intramax. And I think that's completely different and pretty innovative in comparison to most intra-workouts on the market that basically utilize either BCAs or EAAs. Um, and then on top of that, we didn't even use just a straight whey protein because, again, whey protein will require digestion. Um, digestion requires blood. Uh, so blood would be pulled away from the muscle you're actually working and into the gut to actually digest that whey protein. So we went with a whey protein hydrosylate, which is basically hydrolyzed whey protein. And by hydrolyzing it, basically you're breaking it down into tripeptides, which are basically shorter chain protein, you know, two or three amino acids. And that allows for very, very, very easy digestion. Um, it requires very little digestion at all. Um, and so that was ideal to consume during your workout because the blood doesn't need to be pulled away from the working muscle um, into the gut like it would if you were to use an actual, you know, whey protein concentrate, let's say. So I do think it's, you know, pretty cool. I, I know it's a lot of um, people's favorite Performax product, um, but I guess the short answer would be we will be bringing it back out. We just are going through a reformulation process of hopefully making it a better product than it was. Yeah, I know we've tossed some ideas around, and I, I like some of the ideas that you have, um, you know, potentially going for it. Uh, Eaminomax is a great product in the meantime, even though, like you said, it's not a true intra-workout, even though you can use it intra-workout. Um, but I'm excited to get that one back. Yeah, and Eaminomax, you know, is great during cardio. Uh, it can be great during, you know, your workout for sure. 
Uh, it has this few grams of L-carnitine, L-tartrate that enhances performance and endurance. So you're going to get that added benefit while you work out. It has the three grams of leucine, which is the amount you need to activate mTOR and muscle protein synthesis. It has one and a half grams of HICA to further increase um, lean body mass and hopefully keep you from being in a catabolic state. So it certainly is a, a great product to consume, you know, intra-workout, but it wasn't as complete uh, or as geared towards intra as our Intramax was. Because with Intramax, you could, in, you could get increased strength, increased power output, increased muscular recovery. Um, obviously, the hydration that you can get in, from E-Aminomax and the aminos that you also get from E-Aminomax just in a different form. But Intramax was a, a bit better if the idea was to increase you know, strength, size, uh, power output, performance, while also getting all the benefits of increased muscle protein synthesis, increased hydration. So even then, you know, there are certain times or certain people where E-Aminomax would always be better uh, than Intramax. If you're not concerned on putting on size, putting on strength, you're more of an endurance athlete, um, then E-Aminomax might always be your go-to. But for you know the user or consumer looking to get all those other benefits on top of uh, faster recovery, muscle protein synthesis, then I do think Intra Max was a far superior Intra workout product. Agreed. All right. So the next question we have here: Will you be getting rid of artificial colors? No. That's pretty. <laughs> clear <laughs> um, um, I mean I get it uh, but I I yeah I just don't see us shine away from uh, from uh, artificial colors not at least now and not un unless there was uh, a much much larger demand um, for it no yeah I, I don't feel like it's that hindering for any brands that use artificial colors versus not using it. So I, I agree. You know, how we do, it. Um, do you remember uh, VPX when they, they were like one of the first that didn't do, and this was like a long time ago, they didn't do artificial colors and it'd be like a watermelon and it would just be white. It just threw me off. It's just like, I didn't like it. <laughs> like I needed it. Wasn't there, sh wasn't there shotgun like clear, like it was clear as I guess powder can be. Yeah. And, but it, but then it would have the flavor and it, it would always yeah. just mess with, like, just mess with my head. It just completely threw me off and I couldn't consume that product um, because it just like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm tasting watermelon, but this looks white. I don't get it. <laughs> um, so, so from a mental standpoint, I like my watermelons to be red. <laughs> we provide the full experience, not yeah, just taste, exactly. but visually. Um, all right. So. On to the next. Will there be protein powder coming soon? Yeah, and that's something that we've touched on uh, in previous podcasts. We are coming out with a uh, protein probably in the next uh, six to eight weeks. So I'm pretty excited for that. Uh, that should give the the true Performax fans uh, the ability to kind of get all their necessities from us. You know, whether it's pre workout, pump product, amino, intra, test booster, GDA, protein kind of like the whole nine. Um, it's basically going to allow, you know, the, the, the real diehard Performax fans to check all their, their boxes um, with Performax product and not having to go and get protein from, from other brands and other companies. 
Yeah, I get this question a lot too. So I think they're just kind of pressuring you to get that out quicker. Next <laughs> um, question. Is it recommended to take breaks from pre-workouts just so the body doesn't become too tolerant to stimulants? Yeah, I think in general, it's always smart to, you know, take a break every two to three months. So every eight to 12 weeks, I would take, you know, two to four weeks off. Um, I will say I haven't in a long time, um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't recommend it. I think it's just more difficult than, you know, um, it would seem. And I think that might even be part of the problem. You know what I mean? People go, oh, that's going to be too hard or I'm not going to have a good workout. And so they just don't. But then ultimately, the tolerance you build up means that it's not, the product isn't going to affect you the same way. So you might not be having the caliber of workout that you could have if you were a little bit more sensitive to some of those stimulants. So I think it makes sense. I think it's smart to take a break, you know, every um, eight to 12 weeks, but I do think it comes down to the stimulant itself. You know, if it's just caffeine, I mean, there's people that consume caffeine for, you know, decades through coffee. Um, and the coffee still seems to work, you know, relatively efficiently after long periods of time. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you're talking about, you know, some more aggressive stimulants, things like Yohimbine, so on and so forth, um, then I do think it does make sense to, to take a break. Uh, after you know a few months do you believe in adrenal restarters no i don't i don't i don't believe in adrenal fatigue gotcha uh, okay so next question then it is, it was mentioned that slim max can help with carbs so would it help those that are doing keto are there any other products that you would suggest that would work well while on a keto diet um so essentially by lowering circulating blood glucose, uh, you could essentially get into a, a state of ketosis quicker. The problem, though, is, is that you still need to deplete all your glycogen. And that's kind of what SlimMax does because SlimMax isn't a carb blocker um, where it's not going to allow you to absorb uh, those carbohydrates it's actually more efficiently storing them as glycogen. So I do think it could, it could help to some degree. Um, but on the other hand, it could almost, you know, make it more difficult because you're going to be storing that circulating blood glucose as glycogen more efficiently. And at a certain point to get into true ketosis, you're going to need to deplete that glycogen anyway. Um, so it is kind of a conundrum. Um, so I wouldn't like bank on it making a massive difference. But at the end of the day, it should only take the average person, you know, three days to get into ketosis anyway. So um, I don't know how much quote unquote help, you know, one would really need. You just don't eat carbs for three days. Um, yeah, exactly. If it was a product that just made you not eat them, that would be the best. <laughs> well, and then there's like the carb blockers, you know, that block certain enzymes that would help digest carbohydrates. Um, and so that you're actually not absorbing as many carbohydrates, that would probably make more sense than something that efficiently uh, helps store glucose as glycogen. Um, right. And then in terms of supplements, you know, for ketosis, obviously, you know, uh, the BHB salts, things like that could potentially give you more energy if you are relying on ketones already. 
that exogenous ketones would basically give you more fuel, um, you know, good sources of fats, MCT oils, things like that could essentially help. Um, but I don't necessarily have like a, a strong recommendation on things on supplements that you would like need during ketosis uh, or being, being on a keto diet. Gotcha. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would kind of feel the same way. Um, that's all the questions that we had for right now. So that's uh, all I have for you. Cool. All right. Well, I uh, appreciate everybody tuning in and listening. If there's any questions that anybody wants answered on the next podcast, go ahead and um, send them to us via Instagram or Facebook. And um, we will catch you guys next time.